Welcome to the Hiraith Magazine Podcast. I'm Sarah Bringhurst Familia, coming to you from Amsterdam. Hiraith is a Welsh word meaning nostalgia for a home that no longer exists or never was. On the podcast, we explore the question, what is home? Whether we move for love, work, refuge, or adventure, many of us are trying to make ourselves at home far away from the place where we were born. So join us on this journey as we travel around the world in search of home. This episode, we speak with Lisa Furland, an American who lives in Sweden. You may have heard in the news that Sweden is taking a different, less restrictive approach to managing the coronavirus pandemic than many other countries. As it happens, Lisa recently started working for the European Center for Disease Prevention and Control, the ECDC, specializing in the coronavirus response. So she has a lot of interesting things to tell us. I am here with Lisa, an American who has lived in Sweden for several years. You may have heard that Sweden has taken a rather different approach from many other countries when it comes to managing coronavirus. Lisa just started a new job working in public health there, so I am dying to ask her some questions, both about that and her life in beautiful Sweden. So welcome to the Hiraith Magazine podcast, Lisa. Thank you. It's so good to be here. So to start off, why don't you tell me a little bit about where you're from and your family background? I am originally from the U.S. and I grew up in upstate New York. And I went to college in Tampa, Florida, and then graduate school in Atlanta, Georgia. And that's where we lived prior to moving to Sweden. So we've been in Sweden since 2012 and have really sort of settled into life full time here permanently, uh, which has been really great in terms of planning long-term future type decisions. That is great. So tell us a little bit then about what is different about your life in Sweden versus where you lived in the U.S. before. I I would say that, you know, our lives in Sweden here are much more nature-based and we have such close access to uh, walking through the woods or swimming in lakes or ice skating on the lake when it in the winter when it's frozen, if not this last year, but usually. Um, and it's been such a nice change from our lives in Atlanta, Georgia, where we had, uh, you know, sort of local and state parks and you have to pay entrance fee to get there. And it's, you know, you have to you drive the car, park, and then walk on a path and every there's a crowd there or anything. And it seems here, it's just the nature is accessible. It's just there. You just go for a walk in the woods and um, there's enough woods for everyone to enjoy. And uh, the Sweden has the right uh, to public access so that it's actually written into the the law, the culture of everyone having open access to pick blueberries or mushrooms or flowers or whatever you want to do um, anytime you want. So it's been really great to have uh, nature at our front door all times. Oh, that sounds wonderful. So um, I guess because you enjoy it so much in Sweden, a few years ago, you took a kind of a big step and applied for Swedish citizenship. 
So what went into your decision to do that? And what does it feel like to officially be both American and Swedish? I would say, you know, the American citizenship is so notoriously difficult to get that it was a shock to just be able to apply uh, for Swedish citizenship and get the certificate in the mail five days later. And I mean, our decisions to going into it were very simple. We wanted to open up the doors for ourselves employment wise, because a lot of uh, European companies will only hire European citizens or they prioritize or something like that. So for us, it was a financial decision to open more doors um, for employment. And then for our children, um, since uh, Swedish citizenship is recognized based on the parents' citizenship, we only had to apply for ourselves and our kids would automatically become Swedish citizens. So for them, it was really important. Uh, we wanted them to have more opportunities to attend university uh, here in Europe. Um, it's also much cheaper to, <laughs> to attend local universities here than it is, say, in the U.S., where the, the costs keep going up and up and up. So we were really weighing and trying to take the best of both worlds and having the, the fortunate opportunity to do so. It seemed to just make sense to apply. But now, you know, now we have to manage four passports and they expire and we have to renew and all of those great things. So it still is <laughs> it's a juggle. Um, but I think the pros definitely outweigh the cons on that. For sure. So given that, would you say that Sweden feels like home for you now? Yeah. Oh, yeah, we love it. And it's it's definitely home for us. And I think, you know, since we actively chose to live here and to move here and to stay, we have been given opportunities to move back to the U.S., but we keep choosing to stay um, because it does feel like home. And we have made such an effort to make friends, learn the language and uh, really cement ourselves and live in a Swedish neighborhood and go to Swedish schools. And so it's been a very Swedish lifestyle for us. So as much as, you know, as much as we can, since we're not Swedish, but, uh, uh, but yes, I would say we're definitely, definitely at home in Sweden. Oh, that's great. So even though there are all these great things that you love about it, when you first moved to Sweden, you did have a little bit of a difficult time breaking into the job market as an outsider. So you ended up doing a couple of career pivots. You became a published author and a small business owner. Uh, in fact, a few years ago, we interviewed you briefly about the Knocked Up Abroad book series, which is this great anthology about giving birth and parenting in a foreign country. So we will link to that interview in the show notes. Uh, but since then, you've been busy with other projects and you recently started a new full-time job. So tell us about that decision to go back into the workforce and also your new job. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, whenever you move to a new country, especially when it's not for your job, it was for you know my husband's career that we moved, um, you know, you, you do the best you can with the opportunities you have available. And I will say it's notoriously difficult to get employed in Sweden, if you aren't fluent in Swedish, even, you know, working for an international company and especially in public health, my, my field, it's a very sort of government driven service for the public. So I, not knowing Swedish, I couldn't really work uh, in public health. So I had to go outside my field, which is why I absolutely, I just happened to fall into writing and publishing and working with authors and discovered my passion for that. And so it was a great opportunity to to really look inward and let my passion drive my next move career-wise, which is uh, a great opportunity. 
And the, the decision to go back to work was really sort of more, I think, I went into survival mode. I went into like, okay, the world is going upside down. Things are going sideways. We have a virus out there. We don't know what the future is going to look like. What is the best way for me to stabilize my family situation in this very uncertain time? And you know, my husband just took a new job after being with his his former company for 15 years. He just took a new job. And so I'm like, great, great. So now his job is in jeopardy, potentially. Uh, luckily, not, you know, still okay. But um, I really looked to see what could I do uh, to stabilize our family's uh, finances. And I just so happened to have a master's in public health and epidemiology when epidemiologists are in high demand right now. So it, it was a natural next step. And I had been trying to get employment for years with ECDC and had applied numerous times and never heard back and never heard back and never heard back. And then I reached out on LinkedIn and they're like, yes, please send me your CV. And so it was a very, um, you know, when the doors open, it was, you know, because of all the work that I had been doing all along and all the continuing my public health projects as a freelancer really set me up to where I always had something current on my CV uh, to look back on and say, okay, I have been doing work this entire time and I haven't let my skills get stale. And then of course, getting the citizenship enabled me to be employed by ECDC, which only hires Europeans. So it all works out, but with, with planning and a little foresight and a little luck, I think for sure. Well, now you're in the right place at the right time. Yeah, <laughs> nothing like a global pandemic to open some doors. <laughs> <laughs> so Sweden has taken quite a different approach to what many other countries, especially in Europe, are doing to deal with the coronavirus. So can you explain what those Swedish measures are? Yes. Yeah, so the Sweden is actually doing as much as they can legally. I guess I didn't realize how much of the government was uh, limited until, you know, this happened and then you see government in action. And, um, you know, the the government, the Swedish government really relies on the experts. So it's the epidemiologists at the, uh, the public health authority that are making a lot of the decisions and leading the, the politicians. So it's a different approach maybe than some other countries are taking. Um, but they're doing as much as they can for what they think is sustainable long-term. So for example, um, all the kids' schools are still open, um, but they have uh, sent uh, grades 10 to 12 are learning via distance because they're older and they can sit in front of a computer and learn distance learning. Um, if you have like a five-year-old at home, you know how difficult it is to get them to sit in front of a computer and learn school. Uh, so they, they chose these things based on what they thought was sustainable long-term. And um, the rest of us, the adults, are all required to work from home. Um, the assumption being that only those who are essential will be in the office um, any one time. We are told not to use public transportation. We are told to stay uh, two meters away from everyone at all times, uh, limit interactions with people inside and not be indoors in groups larger than 50 people. Even I think outdoors are um, limited as well. So like children's football games or uh, sporting events, um, they're allowed to happen as long as they're outside and people maintain this, the physical distancing rules. So a lot of it is, um, I think, a very uh, uh, re not relaxed approach, but I would say a very, you know, very keeping with Sweden, la gomme. It's not too much, not too little. And um, trying to, uh, yeah, do do find the most effective way to stay 
distanced for as long as possible. And I think Sweden is going to have these measures in place for for a long time. But but in general, it looks we we did not go on a full lockdown. I'd say we went on like a light lockdown. Interesting. So um, with this lockdown and all of this virus stuff happening and your job being in public health, what is it like for you to be on the ground virtually at your job? (laughs) So can you tell us maybe about a typical day at work? A typical day is me being very confused about what I'm supposed to do next. But no, no, um, I'm so lucky to work with people who are uh, super intelligent and really open about collaborating and including everyone. And um, right now I am collecting data from the EU nations on their hospitalized and ICU cases. So we're looking at who is being hospitalized and who is going into the ICU and what are those outcomes and hopefully to to help EU member states identify sort of um, the needs that that are happening on their healthcare system to help them. Uh, There's so many issues related to this in terms of like report lags and the timeliness of the data and the quality of the data and so difficult for everyone, all these pieces of the puzzle to line up. Um, So our job at ECDC is really to help make sense of the larger picture as it's happening and to provide insights if we see them or uh, research into a new topic. Um, if there are questions that a lot of nations are having on a certain effectiveness of face mask wearing, for example. Um, so to do the literature review, there's so many new publications coming out every week. There were like a thousand new publications on coronavirus published last week. So it's helping make sense of all of that's coming out and everything that's happening in the news and all of that. So really doing a lot to track not only current events, but also look retrospectively and say, okay, this is what uh, we can learn from the the situation in Wuhan, the situation in Italy, um, to kind of provide some context and hopefully some direction for future future actions. But yeah, it's very difficult. So there's a lot, a lot to do, not enough hours in the day. I will say um, my colleagues at ECDC are super concerned and aware of burnout, and they encourage us to only work 40 hours a week and say, you're only allowed to work 40 hours a week. You have to clock out. You cannot stay on late. I don't want to see you answering emails over the weekend. And um, so it's been really great, I think, uh, life balance wise, work life balance to have those breaks and to say, okay, now you need to, you really need to, to turn your brain off because it's exhausting work and it's heavy emotionally. And, um, you know, even when you're analyzing numbers, we all understand there are people behind those numbers. And so emotionally, it can, it can get really heavy. So it's important to take those breaks as well. So I think, yeah, I can imagine that that's heavy emotionally. I think for all of us, we're feeling more emotional weight lately. And I think one of the most difficult things about the whole situation is this sense of uncertainty. The government will have a press conference, announce new measures, but then there's not a lot of clarity on what will happen after that. And I'm sure they have a plan, but it's not necessarily best practice to share that plan with the entire population. So I know some people hope for everything to go back to normal in a month or two, but then I've also read that it could take years for some restrictions to be lifted. So I know you don't have a crystal ball, but <laughs> as someone who knows more than I do, do you have a sense of long-term plans or projections? I think that, um, you know, the, the social distancing, physical distancing to meet a recommendation will be in place for a long time. 
and the hand hygiene measure and to some extent um, cancellation of mass gatherings. Like I don't know when the next concert, in-person concert is going to be uh, because there's just so many people in one place at one time and you can't, yeah, the, the risk for transmission is too high. Um, I know that, you know, some countries are already looking at opening up their borders again for border inter international travel, uh, but with the consequence that you will go into two-week quarantine when you return. So I think there there may be some concessions made, um, but there will always be consequences for those actions. So you may get more freedom, but the consequence may be you have to wear a face mask or you have to quarantine, you self-quarantine, or you have to do these things. Um, you can't visit your your elderly relatives in their long-term care facilities. You can't. So I think that, um, you know, it's important to realize that, that some things are going to stay the same. We might be working from home for a long time um, if if we're not essential services. And so it's, yeah, I think uh, those measures will stay in place longer than the other ones. I think more shops will open up and I think a reasonable number of restaurants, if they have outdoor patios, will probably open up. And uh, there may be restrictions on the number of people allowed in at any one time. Um, but that I can see, I can see more things like that happening. And I see more countries opening up their green spaces, opening up beaches as again, as long as the physical distancing measures can be applied. Well, that's good to know. At least some of it will well, change. That's what I hope happens anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And along those lines, as someone with this kind of more specialized background, what are your biggest fears, but also your hopes when it comes to how this will all play out? This is such a unique situation. And I, uh, we're all experiencing the same thing at the same time, which is very unique. I don't think we've ever been affected by the same disease other than influenza. Um, but you know, that affects every country a little differently, but this is a novel virus that we're all having to deal with at the same time. So I, I would hope that it would unify us. I mean, you can't all unify against a virus, but like, I think in some way <laughs> help us, you know, connect and understand and be creative and how we solve problems and learn from one another. I mean, we all have, since we're all going through the same thing, we have this unique opportunity to all like learn and say, oh, there's this solution happening in Germany that's really working. We can use it. Um, and what a great, what a great sort of a global experience to to learn from one another and really listen to, to what's happening in each other's country and context. So I think that it, it could have the potential for that, uh, great international learnings and creativity and innovation. Um, and I think my fears are just going to be, you know, civil unrest or uh, furthering inequality between us or, um, you know, uh, there's always people who will be racist or, you know, I, it, so I think it could also go that direction as well. And I'm sure we'll see a little bit of both, because that seems to be what's happening now. <laughs> Anyways, we see inequalities getting larger, and um, uh, but also the opportunity for us to to really come up with creative solutions and work together. Um, I think more and more we're going. We have to collaborate and work and understand. You know, viruses don't respect political boundaries. They don't care who's in charge or who's who's prime minister. Who they don't care and. And it's really more important that we do our own best effort at uh, protecting ourselves and protecting our community. I mean, what a great time for public health messaging to show the impact that one person can have on your neighbor's health. I mean, it truly is amazing and how effective it is when you stay at home and you, you follow the recommendations. I mean, it really does make a big difference. 
Well, thank you so much for being with us, Lisa, and best wishes to you as you fight the good fight up in Sweden. It's every it's everyone's fight. Everyone's doing such a great job in terms of staying home when they need to and, you know, following the rules and recommendations in their country as best they can. And I, it's you know, really a, everyone is in this together. So thank you for having me. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. And if you have a story you'd like to share, visit us on the web at hiraithmagazine.com. That's H-I-R-A-E-T-H magazine.com. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or SoundCloud. The podcast is available to download on iTunes and other podcast platforms. This episode featured music by Maidan and was recorded and produced by me, Sarah Bringhurst Familia, on the canals of Amsterdam. <laughs>